Howdy, folks. This is the Words of Truth from the Scriptures podcast. I'm Brian Yeager. I'm glad you've tuned in to listen. Today, we're going to be talking about 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22. In our two previous podcasts, we talked about verses 18 through 21. Back on the 15th of October, we covered verses 18 through 20. And then last week, the 22nd, we covered verse 21. Those verses say, For as much as you know, you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. We had, in my opinion at least, some very great lessons from those verses that we covered in the recent uh, podcast. Verse 22 that we're going to talk about today says, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. So good stuff to talk about. Obviously, when we're looking at the Bible, we know that there are points of emphasis that are often made that we recognize in our own personal studies that are, are addressed in teaching, that are addressed in how we worship. For example, we pray to God the Father, and we do so because we're instructed to pray to God the Father. We think about times where Jesus, even himself, as our Lord and Savior, taught that very thing to pray which, to our Father which art in heaven, Matthew 6 and verse 9. We, when we look at our worship, we, we sing to God and, and we remember the Lord's Supper, the death of Christ. When we partake of the bread and the fruit of the vine, we, we eat and we drink in remembrance of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What I love about what Peter has done in writing this epistle, and we're going to kind of highlight this a little bit, even though there's a great many lessons in 1 Peter 1, 22, and we're going to cover them, but I kind of want to focus on the point of the Spirit, because when we talk about salvation, it's easy to remember the Father and the Son and their roles. In John 3, 17, God sent not His Son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. And like we talked about in our podcast last week, we believe in God the Father through Christ because God the Father raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So our faith and our hope is in our Father. Well, the continuation of our faith, as we continue in the faith, as we press forward, the faithful child of God, the Christian, the saint, focuses upon the Father and Son, Jesus Christ. For example, in texts like 1 John chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, it says, Who is a liar but he that denieth Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledges the Son hath the Father also. Let that therefore abide in you, which you have heard from the beginning. If that which you have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, you shall continue in the Son and in the Father. So we look at our relationship with God the Father. We look at our relationship with God the Son. But what Peter does in this first chapter of this epistle is he highlights the Spirit. For example, right at the beginning in the first two verses, says Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father 
through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. If you look at that pattern in that first two verses, you see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. When we look at 1 Peter 1, 18 through 22, we see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. I love that. You got to love that. Uh, I know that when, when we talk about things in the Bible relative to the Holy Spirit, that people tend to lose their minds a little bit. You know, when, when, when you say something like, we're sanctified through the Word of God, like John 17, 17 says, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. That's Jesus in prayer to the Father prior to his betrayal, arrest, and ultimately being put to death. Sanctify them through the truth. People don't lose their minds with that statement. You're set aside through the truth. Uh, okay, they get it. If I say we're sanctified through Jesus, 1 Corinthians 1.30, but of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, people don't lose their minds. But if we look at passages like 2 Thessalonians 2.13, written to the Christians in Thessalonica, says, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. You read a passage like that and people are like, well, how's the Spirit sanctified? What's that mean? Is that a personal, literal indwelling? Is He abiding you? And all these other different crazy, chaotic thoughts come to mind. Why, why is that happen? It happens because the Holy Spirit, uh, He is often taught of falsely in the world of religion. And there are so many teachings out there that walk away from the simplicity of the truth that it com confuses and, and conflates what we're talking about when we look at the Holy Spirit. Well, what we're going to address today is the role of the Spirit in the revelation of the Word of God. The Spirit and the Word are inseparable, right? People tend to know that Jesus is the Word, John 1.1. 1, 1. Well, the, the, the Spirit and the Word are inseparable. Are you hearing me? Think about passages like Ephesians 6.17 in a context talking about the spiritual armor that the saints in Ephesus were told to put on. It says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Think about that. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We're going to put some other passages in here throughout uh, our study that's going to highlight that point as well. And like we talked about earlier, and we need to remember, uh, and when I say earlier, I meant er earlier in our studies in 1 Peter chapter 1, the Spirit was and is not only at work just in Revelation. Now, that doesn't mean spiritual gifts still exist. You know, when you're studying the Bible, there's a podcast, I don't remember exactly when it was, um, on the age of miracles. Um, if I remember correctly, it was back back in January. Let me look here real quick. Uh, if you've got questions about spiritual gifts, you've got questions about the work of the Holy Spirit, January 3rd, The Age of Miracles is the podcast that you ought to go and listen to. And you can do that through the website, wordsoftruth.net, or wherever else you're getting this podcast. It should be available to you there. If you have troubles finding it, get a hold of me. I'll help you with that. What we want to understand, and we don't want to miss, because people tend to go to one extreme or the other on the Holy Spirit, is that the Spirit did multiple things and still is at work in, in the scheme of redemption. In Titus chapter 3, he's connected to baptism. In verses 3 through 7, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, 
deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So you heard that, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Well, we don't want to lose our minds here and start going off into crazyville with, you know, outlandish doctrines. Uh, when, when we look at statements like that, people want to impose some other thought or want to add into the text uh, different things. Uh, you know, for example, somebody might ask, well, do you believe that the Holy Spirit dwells in Christians today? Listen, 1 John 4, 16, we have known and believed the love that God had to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. Christians indwell deity, and deity indwells Christians. But that's not a literal embodiment. It's a figure of speech. It's like walk in the light in 1 John 1, verse 7. Walking in the light doesn't mean that you're literally walking in some physical form of light. I can be walking in the light if I turn off the light in my garage here where I'm recording this podcast. It is complete darkness if I was to turn off that light because there's no source of light here. There's no window or any other access to light. Uh, so it would be darkness. I could still say I'm walking in the light. So if you can understand that, don't lose your mind when it comes to the Holy Spirit, okay? Just keep in mind the Holy Spirit, God the Father, and God the Son are very much at work, not in a direct manner and a physical body type of way, but in work in our present redemption and certainly in the future to come in a non-miraculous, meaning outside of the realm of spiritual gifts way. We don't have to lose our minds there. And I love that Peter brings this up. Um, even though at, in the first century, spiritual gifts, like you read in 1 Corinthians 12, 3 through 11, were active at this time, it's separate and apart from, and he makes that clear, seeing you've purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit. So that connection to the Word and what was preached and the power of the gospel, all beautiful things that we get to talk about in our lesson today. So we're starting off with seeing ye have. This means these Christians who are scattered, who are facing persecution, who are primarily Gentiles, as we've talked about and previous podcasts, have already purified their souls. Jesus told his disciples in John 15 and verse 3, Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Clean, purified, okay? Obeying the truth makes one free from sin. Now this isn't apart from other actions. We know becoming clean is a multi-step uh, process, uh, for example, when Paul quotes Ananias in Acts 22 and verse 16, where Ananias said to him, And now why tarest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. It's not through the word alone. Anytime somebody would read a verse in the Bible, it's not a lone thing. You have to take all things into consideration. When we talk about washing, we're not separating washing from the blood of Christ. Revelation 1.5 
and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So the washing there, you know, and, and then looking at the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit, like we read in Titus chapter 3 when we read verses 3 through 7. So all those things are there. But the point that Peter is making, purifying your souls and obeying the truth, is it obedience to the truth makes you free from sin? In Romans chapter 6, 16 through 18, know ye not that to whom you yield yourself servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which is delivering you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. So being free from sin, being made the servants of righteousness. Uh, very clear, very simple to understand. From there, it is up to each and every individual Christian to maintain that purity in Christ. When you think about some of the scriptures that make this point, 1 Timothy 5.22, Paul the evangelist Timothy says, lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partakers of other men's sin. Keep thyself pure. There's no misunderstandable language there. And James 4, 8, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The people addressed in the book of James are in a multitude of sins as a whole. I mean, when, when, when you start in chapter 1, there's double-mindedness, there's doubt. They're not looking at the word of God. They're forgetting who they are. They're not tending to the needs of their needy brethren in times of persecution. In chapter 2, they're exalting the rich above the poor. Even in the assembly of the Lord, they become respecters of persons. They're not doing works. They've got dead faith as you go through uh, chapter 2, chapter 3, talking about the control of the tongue. I mean, and on and on. There's just a lot of problems. The way they're treating one another, chapter 4 and chapter 5, highlights a lot of that. So they needed to repent. They needed to purify their hearts. The Lord did his part. They were converted. Now they needed to come back. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear we should be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. Again, this is a letter written to Christians. The work of purification is a continual process upon the responsibility of saints. So when we come back to 1 Peter 1.22, seeing ye have purified, so they did it in the past, Obviously, from what we just read, they got to keep doing it, staying pure at the very least. Your souls, the word souls, I, I love, one of the things I love doing is word studies. It is absolutely awesome to see how the same Greek word is translated in other passages and coming to a better understanding of that word. Because if you just look at Pesukehe, it's Strong's number 5590. I don't know about the pronunciation being right, but if you just look at the definition of that word, it is broad. It's, it's breath, right? So seeing you've purified your souls, if you just change that to breath, 
It's like, so what? Is the gospel a breath mint? Is it a mouthwash? But then the definition goes on by, by Strong's to be, by implication, spirit uh, or the animal uh, principle on, on one hand, rational and mortal soul. On the other, mere vitality, even of plants. You can see how broad it is. Thayer says breath, the breath of life, the vital force which animates the body and shows itself in breathing of animals and of men. Life, that which is there is life, a living soul. And it, it, I mean, it, the definition goes on to the soul, the seed of feelings, desires, affections, uh, aversion. So obviously context has to have a lot to do with how we look at this word like it is in the English language. We have to look at context for things. But I just want to give you some ideas how this word is translated so that we can understand we're not talking about the flesh. We're talking about your being. I can't remember when it was, and I can't even remember whether it was a, a taught lesson or uh, something that uh, that I wrote. I, from, t it seems to me to be to be an article that I wrote where uh, your I think the title of it was uh, "You're a body." Wait, how what, how did I title it? Uh, "You're a soul with a body," maybe. Um, let me let me see if I can real quickly search this up. Uh, yeah, of course I can't real quickly search it up. It, it basically you're a body with a soul, uh, or you're a soul with a body, not the other way around. See, I'm I'm messing that up. You, uh, uh, whatever the case may be, you maybe if you you'd want to find that you could search on my website and do a better job than I can. It's a little bit hard juggling everything that I'm doing right now. Uh, I know there's uh, one lesson, bodily exercise, profiteth little, where I made that point. Maybe that's what I'm thinking about, uh, where, where I put put forth, you're a body, or you're a, you're a soul with a body, not the other way around. Uh, whatever the case may be, this is the point. It, we're not just talking about the flesh in itself. We're talking about life. And in Matthew chapter 2, the first time this word is brought forth, and, and there's like 90-some verses where you can find this Greek word translated various different ways, life, soul, or souls, lives, the soul in relation to what goes beyond. You know, in Acts 2.31, speaking of Jesus, he's saying this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, neither his flesh did see corruption. And our study of 1 Peter, we saw it in verse 9 of 1 Peter chapter 1, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your soul. So we're talking about that which goes on, right? You see that consistently in different verses. And Matthew 2.20 saying, arise and take the young child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. So there it's just translated life. Same thing in Matthew 6.25, therefore, I say, and you take no thought for your life, that's the first time in this verse, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on, is not the life more than meat and the body more than raiment? And, and that's a great clarification on we're, we're looking beyond. In Matthew 10, 28, which is the next time it appears, it's translated soul twice there. Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. And it see, it separates the carnal body from the soul says, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. In Matthew 10 and verse 39, he that findeth his life shall lose it. There's translated life. And then again in this verse, 
and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. So twice there it's translated life. But then the next time, Matthew 11 and verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. And Matthew 12 and verse 18, behold, my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles, speaking of pro prophetic about Christ. And that word is there translated soul. It's life in Matthew 16 and verse 25, twice. Uh, and then in verse 26, very next verse, for what is a man profit if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, here's the point. As you just kind of keep going on and reading and reading and reading, Matthew 20, 28, even as the son of man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many, there translated life, and on and on, where uh, love Lord thy God with, with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, Matthew 22, 37, there it's soul. You're talking about the true living source of man, not just the outward that perishes, but the internal, which is eternal. Uh, and, and that you, you see as you keep going through and you do this word study and you think it through the majority of the ways uh, in which it is presented. We see it here in 1 Peter 1, 22. We'll see it again in 1 Peter 2, 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. We'll see it again in 1 Peter 2, 25. For you are a sheep going astray, but now return unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. And then again in 1 Peter 3, 20, which sometimes were disobedient, wherein once the long-serving God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. 1 Peter 4, 19, wherefore let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him which in well-doing unto a faithful Creator. So there, there's the usage of it in 1 Peter, and then again, Peter uses it in 2 Peter twice. 2 Peter 2 and verse 8 translated soul, and 2 Peter 2, 14 in the King James Version translated souls in the plural uh, that is there. So we're, we're looking at the inward man here, the, you know, the purification of the inward man. We're not talking about the outward. We're talking about the inward, that which will go on forever. And you know, sometimes this word's even translated minds. And I think that's interesting, like in Acts 14 and verse two, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil effect against their brethren. So it so shows the living person within your thought, your faculties, all that comes uh, together there. Or another way that is translated as heart or heartily, for example, in Colossians 3.23, whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men, talking there as uh, to servants. Same thing in Ephesians 6 and verse 6, not with eye servants, men please, but servants of Christ, going to the will of God from the heart, so that internal man that will live on, their translated heart. Just fascinating to think about that way, but to understand it from doing that word study, and you could go on and look at the you know, uh, uh, over a hundred verses that you would find that word in. And it's a consistent conclusion. You're not talking about the flesh. You're talking about that which goes on. So seeing you have purified your inward man, the, your life, your lives, your soul, your mind, your heart, and obeying the truth. I love it. it you know, Bible study is just awesome. It is just awesome to be able to take the time 
and go through. And if you don't know how to do a word study, um, get a hold of me. Uh, you have, if you're listening to this, you're on the internet, right? And there are free resources whereby you can have Bible programs that will allow you to click on the Strong's number and will allow you to do searches. It is so much easier. When, when I first started uh, studying the gospel and learning the gospel back in 1990, it was much more difficult to do a word study. I didn't even know how to do a word study until the late 1990s, and nobody taught it to me. I had to learn it, but it required multiple books uh, to be able to find other passages unless you were going to learn to read Koyan Greek or, or learn to read uh, Hebrew or, or Aramaic. It was very difficult. Now you have no excuse to be misled. It is not difficult to do a word study. If you can click and read, you got it. It's simple. It has simplified the preparation of teaching for me a million times, it seems like. I remember 1999 doing word studies in preparation to teach and preach, and sometimes just spending eight, nine, ten hours just doing a single word study. Now it's like eight, nine, ten minutes, uh, depending on how deep I want to go into it. You could do the same thing. You don't have to be a genius. You don't need a degree. You just need free tools that are available to you. I'd be Again, I'd be glad to help you with it if you want to get in touch with me, and we could talk about that. So seeing you've purified your souls, the inward man, the, the, the life, the soul, the life of man, the mind of man, and obeying the truth that we've already talked about because obeying the truth makes you free from sin. We read that in Romans 6, 16 through 18. Now let's talk about this, this phrase, through the Spirit. The phrase, through the Spirit, is going to contextually, when we pick up next week, we're going to be talking about verses 23 through 25. So contextually, this ties the Spirit to the Word of God. Contextually, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God, which liveth them by the further. For all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the Word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the Word which by the gospel is preached unto you. So contextually, through the Spirit, what agency does the Spirit bring about? Well, the Holy Spirit's the revealer of the Word. In Acts, the first chapter, first two verses, you might think of this book as Second Luke or Second Theophilus because it's written by Luke to Theophilus. Says, the former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. So how were those commandments given? Through the Holy Ghost. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul writes in verses 9 through 13, But as, I, as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, nor neither have entered in the heart of man the things which God prepared for them that love him. But God hath, rece God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man, but the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but that which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And Second Peter, this is not just a New Testament point. You know, you might read Acts 1, 1 and 2, and think, oh, it's from this point that the Holy Spirit's involved. No, always has been the case. 
2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy of God, or the prophecy, sorry, I added the word God there. The prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And then in Revelation 2, 11, and you could see this throughout the wording and, and, and different places of the Bible. This is just one example. Revelation 2, 11, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, he that overcometh shall not be heard of the second death. Well, how was the Spirit communicating to the churches? Through John. John wrote the letter that is called Revelation to the seven churches of Asia Minor. You see that if you read the first verses of Revelation chapter 1, it is made very clear unto us. Uh, the in, in Revelation 1, beginning in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants the things which must shortly come to pass, and sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. Now, the word angel just means messenger. Think about this now. Put this together. Understand how this is. There are angels involved at times, yes. But what we saw in, in, in reading Revelation 2 and verse 11 is, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So, uh, John's writing to the seven churches which are in Asia, Revelation 1 and verse 4, through what means? Through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, or we should say, maybe if we're going to be more accurate, um, the Holy Spirit is speaking through John, through writing this epistle to these seven churches. Now, to further think about this, think about David, you know, in Mark 12, 36, you read, David himself said by the Holy Ghost, Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. That's quote of Psalm 110 verse 1, where the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David said in 2 Samuel 23, 2, the spirit of the Lord spake by me and his word was in my tongue. Got it? Real simple. Seeing you've purified your inward man, and obeying the truth through the Spirit means that they had become clean. Their inner man had been renewed, had become clean as they obeyed the truth through the Spirit. Well, how was the Spirit involved? The, revel the revealed preached word uh, to them. And it's not that the Spirit and the Word are the exact same thing. It is that they are inseparable. Jesus said in John 6, 63, it is a spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words I speak in you, they are spirit and they are life. Inseparable, they're joined together, as is the Father. Remember, we talked about last week, the source of Jesus' preaching is the Father. The source of the message of the Holy Spirit is Christ. All of it connects, inseparable. You could say the word of God, the word of Christ. You could say the word of the Holy Spirit. All would be accurate. All would be true. Wonderful, beautiful, and simple. Don't let man confuse that. So seeing you've purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit, and I want to talk about unto, unto unfeigned love of the brethren. So their initial obedience brought them to something. And I want you to think about the process that we see in Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2, 36 through 41, let the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in the heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one in the name of Jesus Christ for remission of sins, 
and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For this promise is unto you, to your children, all those that are far off, as, the more, as many the Lord our God shall call. With many other words that you testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and that same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Added unto them. What's that mean? Verse 47 gives us clarification. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added unto the church daily such as should be saved. Added unto them. Added unto the church. Through obey, obeying the truth, added unto the church, being then part of the body of Christ, the church, 1 Corinthians 12, 27, you're, now you're the body of Christ and members in particular, you're then in, in a family, a spiritual family of God. You know, Ephesians talks about, in Ephesians 3, 15, Paul writing to the saints in Ephesus, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. You're part of a family. That's what you're added unto. You obey the gospel. That brings you unto this family. And Hebrews 12, 22 and 23 says, You are come unto Mount Zion, under the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and the spirits of just men made perfect. So not just a family that is earthly or even local in the sense of I'm a member of a congregation here in El Paso, Texas. I am part of that spiritual family, but we are also part of the spiritual family of those that have been long deceased. The Apostle Paul is my brother in Christ. The Apostle Peter is my brother in Christ. Timothy is my brother in Christ. We're part of the same church, even though they're long deceased. And within the church, relationships matter. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed from death and life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. I want you to think about how important brethren are. And I love that Peter brings that up. And, and this is what, when I was talking about earlier, I wanted to highlight the work of the Spirit and get us to think about the Spirit but there are many wonderful things in 1 Peter 1, to talk about. Brethren being one of them and how important brethren are to our salvation. There are a lot of people that want to neglect their role with the saints. And you do not realize that they have done that to the losing of their souls. So the text says, And obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love, of the brethren. Unfeigned means sincere, without hypocrisy. That is a huge thing to talk about. Sincere, without hypocrisy. That Greek word shows up for us six times in the New Testament. And I want you to think about this connection. And Romans 12, 9 and 10, it's, it's translated here, dissimulation in verse 9. Think about how verses 9 and 10 connect to exactly what we're talking about. Let love be without dissimulation, which is here, unfeigned, translated unfeigned. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, preferring one another. So sincere, without hypocrisy, unfeigned. I want you to think about this. 
I want you to think about this. How many times somebody might say they love somebody, but it's just words. Well, the love of brethren is shown. It is shown. It is through action. You know, when, when Paul used this word in 2 Timothy 1.5, he says, I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith, so sincere without hypocrisy faith that is in thee, which dwelleth first and thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded this in thee also. Paul is saying, I can see it. I can see it. It's sincere. It's genuine. It's not hypocritical. It's real. So when we think about this word and we think about how that relates to the Christian's relationship with his or her brothers and sisters in Christ, 1 John chapter 3, coming back to this, I'm going to read again verse 14, but I want to keep going a little bit further. We know that we've passed from death and life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in the death. Now notice, whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need and shoveth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. It has to be action. And it has to be true action, sincere action, not false words, not, hey, if you need something, let me know. And then the phone rings or the doorbell or the door knock or the letter comes or the email comes. Hey, I, I need, oh no, they're calling. On, I didn't think you were really going to take me up on that. You know, you know what I mean? There are people that are like that. It's real action. And James 2, 14 through 16, what doth it profit my brethren? Though a man see I have faith and hath no works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are needful for the body, what doth it profit? Your words aren't helping anybody. If you back up in 1 John chapter 3, you know, where we were at 14 through 18, and you read about verses 11 and 12, for this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother. And wherefore slew him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. It's not good enough just to be part of a family. Cain and Abel were brothers physically, but remember, Cain's not his brother's keeper, right? Murders him. When you look back at that account in Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Process of time came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought the firstlings of the flock and the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering, he had no res not respect. Cain was very wroth. And his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shall thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother. And it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. 
And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand? When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and the face shall I be hid, and I shall be a fugitive and vagabond on the earth, and it shall come to pass that every one that finds me shall slay me. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding it should kill him. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. So when you look at, at brotherly love, not as Cain, not as Cain, not being wicked towards your brethren. And that doesn't just mean not killing them. That means not actively loving them, like we read in 1 John 3, 14 through 18. And then there's other things that happen. People will take brotherly love and they will say, well, let me focus my brotherly love on those people that I'm close to in the congregation. Now, listen, it's inevitable. You know, if you've got a congregation like we do here in El Paso, we have younger people, we have middle-aged people, we have older people, we have people that do different and have different hobbies and, and like to do different things, people that have children and people that don't have children. Obviously, there's going to be a pool in some directions. You know, there, there are families that have children in the same age ranges. They're going to get together at parks and do different things. Obviously, some of the brethren that don't have families, they're not necessarily going to be part of that and not to exclusion, but just by fact that, hey, we're going to push our kids on the swing today. You're going to assume that somebody that's 60 years old is not going to want to come and watch you push your children on the swings today. But you might get together with other people, do different things. People that like to play sports, people that like different types of, of, of hobbies, uh, etc. Here's the danger, though. Sometimes those things create the formation of a party or a sect where you get closer to some brethren and you become exclusive. And you see this manifest itself in different ways, not just in the we have more in common than you, you know, in, in different areas, but even when you have multiple families in a congregation. The first work that I did uh, in, 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 in the attempt to preach the gospel of lost souls in Virginia, there was a congregation there that had major families in it, and those families were divided. And the division in that congregation was not one over doctrine, but over physical family-related issues, and there were parties within that congregation. And the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 16-19, if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God, meaning contentiousness doesn't belong in the church. Now in this, so he's tying back to verse 16, I declare unto you, I praise you not, that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together in the church, that is in the assembly, I hear there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which were approved may be made manifest among you. So heresies are like parties, a sect. You've created a party or sect. That could be in many different ways, all of the which I've mentioned uh, just a few moments ago, and many, many more that could be listed, and some that I'm sure I've never even thought about. 
That party spirit, folks, is not brotherly love. That party spirit is not unfeigned love of the brethren. Unfeigned love of the brethren is what God expects to see among his people. Let me put this to you. This is our proving ground. If you can't live at peace among Christians on earth, why in the world do you think God would have you for all eternity in heaven where you would want to go off in your own little corner with your friends? It, here, you're going to be in heaven with the family of God. It's not going to be, hey, you know, I'm married to my wife, Katrina. We obviously have a closer relationship than I do with any other brethren. She is my wife. We have the relationship of she being my wife, the mother of my children. She is my best friend. I have known her longer than any other of my brethren, et cetera, et cetera. When we get to heaven, it's not going to be marriage. It's not going to be, hey, Katrina, let's go over here and have our private brother and sister in Christ time. We need to start that here on earth. Getting accustomed to loving our brethren sincerely without hypocrisy and not just those that are closest to us in the flesh. Unfeigned love of the brethren. When we get to chapter 4 in 1 Peter, this language comes up. 1 Peter 4 verses 8 through 11. And above all things. Oh, what? What is he going to talk about? And above all things. Have fervent charity among yourselves. You know, when, when I go and maybe order a hamburger from a restaurant, I might say unto that place, above all things, do not put tomato on my burger. For me, if you put tomato on my food, that ruins it. It's it's done. I can't get the see. I can't stand the taste. Don't ask me why. It's just how I am. So I might emphasize that. If you put other things I don't want on there, maybe I can take it off. Maybe I can eat it. You put the tomato on there. It's it's just done. It's just ruined. Salad. Don't put the tomato on there. Right. Above all things, this is the Lord's order. Have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Go back to James 5, 19 and 20, a little bit on commentary there. Using hospitality one another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so ministers the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the works of God. If any man minister, let him do it as the ability which God gives, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is what the Lord wants to see among his people. Did you hear that emphasis? Now, don't get lost in that wording. It's not saying there's a greater or less than sin. James 2.10, Whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all, remains the truth. 1 Peter 4.8.11 doesn't erase that. The point is, brotherly love is going to fix, prevent so many problems and that's why it's a point of emphasis. That's why when you're studying books like 1 John chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, brotherly love is mentioned. It would have kept the people that departed from the saints in 1 John together had there been unfeigned love of the brethren. That emphasis of relationship would have kept them together, would have helped to the aiding of the souls that were lost. From the beginning of the work of Christ, notice the wording. 
Jesus says, a new commandment I give unto you, as he's talking to his disciples, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye love one another. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if ye have loved one another. It's not put a sign on the front of a building. It's not call yourselves by this name. It's not a certain item in worship. It's not a certain key doctrine. It's not a plan of redemption. It's brotherly love. And John 15, 17, these things command you that you love one another. First John, if you continue reading chapter three, which we've been in multiple times, this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave his commandment. Ooh. You go later in first John. If you don't sincerely love your brethren, you can't love God. Uh, there, there was a time here where we had a young man living with one of the sisters in Christ, which happened to be his grandmother. But the, your brethren first, whatever your physical relationship is with somebody, if you're both Christians, your brethren first. And he had done some things to err against her. And I was talking to him and his name was Gary. And I said, Gary, you don't love God. He said, you don't know my heart. You can't know whether I love God or not. And I said, by all means, I know you don't love God because what you have done to your sister in Christ. And I told him this, 1 John 4, 20 and 21. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God in whom he hath not seen? And this is the commandment we have of them, that he that loveth God loveth his brother also. There's another period in time where we had members in the congregation and they had done some things that brought about some question. And as there was discussion about the things that were brought about question, this brother talked about the past sins of some of his brethren, things that had been confessed and repented of. And he said, had I known that this person and this person, this person had done this, I would have never been part of this congregation. You know what 1 John 4, 20 and 21 tells me? That person doesn't love God. I don't need to hear anything else. And neither does God. Your relationship with your brethren is that important. You'll not see emphasized any other thing in the New Testament, in instruction, like brotherly love. Thus, this verse goes on, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Fervently means intensely. Brotherly love with a pure heart. In 1 Timothy 1, 5, the, the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience of faith unvain. This is written to an evangelist, right? Think about motives and impure motives. In the book of Jude, there are those that crept in unaware, verse 4. They were seeking to draw away disciples after them. And verse 16 says, these are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts. And their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's person and admiration because of advantage. They don't love the brethren. Their motives are impure. And this is not a, you know, I'm going to do this for you so that you'll later turn around and do it for me. When we think about principles that are taught in the scriptures, brotherly love is about me serving you, period. It's not about return or gain. And it's not about, I hope you remember this. You know the right way to do something? When you, when you, when you put on display brotherly love for somebody else, you ought to forget about it. 
and not expect anything in return. Think about this principle in Luke 14, 12 through 14. Then said to him that bade him, Jesus to somebody that invited him to a meal, when thou makest us dinner or supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren speaking there, neither thy kinsmen nor the rich neighbors, lest they bid thee again and recompense be made to thee. So don't do things where you're going to get favors in return. But when thou makest thee, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, that thou should be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee, for there should be recompense at the re- resurrection of the just. Here in principle, don't do something and hope for something in return. Brotherly love is like this, Galatians 5.13. For brethren, you've been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion of the flesh, but by love serve one another. By love, that's the engine by which Christians serve one another. That's the engine. In 1 Peter 3 and verse 8, says, Finally, be of all my mind, having compassion on one another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. Love as brethren is highlighted. It's separated from other forms of love that you show in this lifetime, different than the love you have towards your children. Hopefully, you're married to a Christian. If you're not, it's different than the love you have towards your spouse because all of that is carnal. Brotherly love is spiritual and it is eternal. When when I tell my brother, sister in Christ, I love you forever, I love you forever. It's not going to end in the resurrection. It goes on forever. Think of intense love, how that's manifested, how that's shown. Let me give you a couple Bible examples as we come towards the end of our study here. In Romans 16, 3 and 4, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus, who have for my life laid down their own necks, on whom not only I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles. Think about what Priscilla and Aquila did for Paul. They put their life on the line. Philippians chapter 2, 25 through 30 talks about Epaphroditus. Paul is writing to the saints in Philippi, a congregation that Epaphroditus is a member of. He says, yet I suppose it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger, he that ministered to my wants. When you go look at chapter four, uh, verse 11 and following, the church in Philippi supported Paul. They sent Epaphroditus to Paul. Paul's in prison at the time he writes this letter. Notice what he says about Epaphroditus as we read on. For he longed after y'all and was full of heaviness because that ye had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick, nigh unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I sent him therefore the more carefully, that when ye see him again, you may rejoice, and that I may be the less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness. Hold such in reputation, because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life, to supply your lack of service toward me. So Epaphroditus put Paul over his own physical well-being. That's fervent brotherly love. And then you see it on the saints in Philippi towards Epaphroditus and Paul. The saints in Philippi, when they heard that Epaphroditus was sick, they were greatly concerned. It was fervent. It was intense. It was sincere so much that Paul said, I need to send Epaphroditus back to them so that they can see that he's okay, that he has survived what he's gone through. Folks, that's brotherly love. That's brotherly love. That is what you obey the gospel through the Spirit unto, not just eternal life with God the Father, the Son, the Spirit, but eternal life with your brothers and sisters in Christ.
I love it, don't you? Being part of the spiritual family of God is an amazing, wonderful, peaceful thing. Faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who genuinely care for you is awesome. It's just awesome. I'm glad I've got brethren that fulfill these instructions. So next week, we're going to pick up verses 23 through 25. I've already read those, but I'll do it again. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and the glory of men is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. I hope you will look forward to that lesson, good things that we have to talk about, and we'll go into chapter 2 in connection to the Word of God as well, and we'll tie into another podcast that we're going to have uh, coming up on Tuesday. So I hope you have found this to be a profitable study and a thought-provoking study if you've got questions. As always, I invite you to call me up at 915-525-5794 or visit thewordsoftruth.net uh, website and get in touch with me through there, through email. I'd love to help you. I'd love to meet with you in person, talk to you over the phone, uh, text, or or to FaceTime or Skype, or however we can go about it. Please let me help you. If you need help, I'd, I'd love the opportunity. Love the opportunity to help you to obey the gospel, which is revealed from the Father, the Son, the Spirit, that you might be saved. Love to help you to come to know the fervent love of brothers and sisters in Christ. I hope if all goes according to plan, you will have a next podcast coming up on Tuesday and that you'll tune back in. I thank you so much for listening. Until next time, I will say goodbye.